Now I would like to quote Michelangelo in a sonnet addressed to the beloved. This is the substance of what he says. I must love in you that part that you yourself love. It is your soul. To fall in love with your soul, I must not draw from my body alone, but very much from my soul. The soul takes charge of the body without being hindered by the body, and the soul falls in love with the soul. Its true nature is its capacity to connect with everything. Thus, its dimension is the infinite. It is very much as soul to soul and not as body to body that total communion can be achieved. Everything occurs as if the physical world would like to train us and initiate us to beauty by demonstrating that beauty exists, by signifying to us furthermore that it is extensible and transformable, that beginning with formal beauty, other harmonics, other resonances, other transfigurations are possible. In the light of the soul, it is good for us to return for a moment to the Mona Lisa, to her look and her smile. Surely there is something mysterious about the look. Where does the beauty of a look come from? Does it reside simply in the physical aspects of the eyes, eyelids, eyelashes, eye color, and so on? The physical beauty of the eyes can certainly contribute to it to the extent that this beauty is capable of awakening the sense of beauty in the being gratified by it. Now, as we have said, true beauty is precisely the consciousness of beauty and the impulse toward beauty. But because of that very fact, the look is more than the eyes. Don't all languages express the idea that the eyes are the windows of the soul? The beauty of a look comes from a light that wells up from the depths of being. It can also come from an external light that illuminates it, especially when the light captures in an instant something beautiful or when it encounters another look of love and beauty. Each of us has already experienced that intense moment when, during an exceptional concert or theater event, all the participants' faces are transfigured. So clearly does beauty attract, increase, and heighten beauty. That is consistent again with what we read in St. Augustine. According to him, beauty results from the encounter between the interior of being and the splendor of the cosmos, which, for him, is the sign of the glory of God. This encounter is in some way, this encounter in some way, 
annihilates the separation of the internal and external. If the beauty of the world forms a landscape, a being's soul is a landscape as well, which Fairlane expresses in the line, your soul is a chosen landscape, in which the Chinese aesthetic designates by the term feeling landscape. The soul's landscape is made up of memories and dreams, fears and desires, experienced and anticipated scenarios. Thus, let us turn our attention for the third time to the Mona Lisa. Shouldn't there be a key to unlock the mystery of her look? Could it possibly be that misty landscape behind her, both distant and near? Here, let us listen to Franz Cuerre, who writes in Le Seul Elevant. In forms of rocks and lakes burst the strange soundings of an interior world. At the height of the Mona Lisa's shoulders, an ochre landscape of hilly terrain begins, which the efflorescence of the rocks run through. To the left, the path opens onto the grey waters of a lake, striated by the shadows of the overhanging rocks. These are thrust faults, manes, fierce necks, deformed muscles that rise above the waters in a burst of petrified anger. A prehistoric violence blocks the view. To the right, beside the young woman's turned-up mouth, the path follows the course of the muddy river, threading its way up from level to level among the fallen rocks, finally reaching the shore of a second lake higher than the first. This is another world, immaterial, immensely contemplative, toward which the smile and the movement of the eyes subtly direct us. A dim glow makes the high-altitude lake just barely iridescent, but the maledictions of the shadows and obstructions are vanquished. Other rocks rise, but they no longer shade or enclose anything. Their shadow traces a ring, suggests transparency, leaves the mirror of the waters intact. Between the two purified shores opens a gap where the gold of the water and the light emerge and extend together toward infinity. Is this a god who welcomes the traveler? Is it the joy of an enlightened intelligence at the height of its meditation? Is it childhood rediscovered, made more beautiful by the distances of memory? A human dream begins there, at the height of the eyes and the pure forehead. Its dawns are even more beautiful than the hills of Florence in the sun's first rays. 
Taking into account this original landscape, a landscape already containing the promise of beauty, the Mona Lisa no longer appears to us as the simple portrait of a socially prominent woman, but as a miraculous manifestation of that potential beauty the universe promises from the very first. Her smile and look thus become the sign of an intuitive awareness, an awareness of a gift that comes from afar. Most importantly, they signify to us that authentic incarnate beauty is never the beauty of a single isolated face. It is transfiguration, thanks to the encounter of interior light and another light forever offered, but so often obscured. Transfiguration is understood here as that which is transformed from within, and also as that which shows through in the space of life between the finite and the infinite, between the visible and the invisible. Have we said all there is to say? A voice rises to whisper in our ear that the soul poses a problem nevertheless, since there are some who simply deny its existence. Perhaps a definition of the soul proposed by Jacques de Bourbon Lucet would be acceptable to almost everyone. Using a musical image, he says that the soul is the continuo of each being, a rhythmic music, almost in unison with the heartbeat, that each of us carries within from the time of, time of our birth. It is located on a deeper, more intimate level than consciousness. Sometimes muted, sometimes hushed, it is never interrupted, and at certain moments of strong emotion or awakening, it makes itself heard. To make itself heard, to resonate, is its manner of being. To resonate, yes, that is the right word. To resonate within, to resonate with the continuo of another, to resonate with the continuo of the living universe, that is its chance to be immortal. To sing is to be, asserts Roki. Does there exist any other law for the soul than this one? Don't stop the music. This preeminence assigned to the soul makes us think of courtly love as celebrated by the troubadours and, a bit later, by Dante and Petrarch. That almost mystical Western experience, though it existed in Arab and Chinese cultures, nevertheless seems suspect to some modern feminists. They see it as a ruse on the part of men who put women on a pedestal to better confine her, to fix her in an image, and thus to dominate her. I do not believe the Trouvères and Troubadours had such Machiavellian motives. Their adoration was not invented. It came from an authentic, irrepressible urge.
All the same, one point deserves to be emphasized. With such ardor, such respect, the adherents of courtly love make it clear that what they adore more than the vulnerable mortal woman is that gift from afar that women in particular possess, a gift of beauty that is like divine grace. Pronouncing these words, gift and grace, I know that the moment has come to reflect upon the connection that can exist between beauty and goodness. Because I am of Chinese origin, I am also inhabited by my mother tongue. This heritage provides us with the expression which means the beauty of the woman is a gift from heaven. Moreover, to designate the good or goodness, the ideogram how is composed graphically of the sign for woman and the sign for child. And most importantly, to designate beauty that is offered to our view, Chinese uses hao kan, which means good to see. Brought up with this language, the Chinese have an instinctive tendency to associate beauty and goodness. Thus, why not note that in French as well, an intimate phonic tie exists between beauty, beauty, and goodness, bonté. The two words come from the Latin bellus and bonus, which in fact derive from one shared Indo-European root, duenos. Neither am I forgetting that in ancient Greek, a similar term, kalosagathos, contains both the idea of the beautiful, kalos, and the idea of the good, agathos. But most important, on the subject of the fundamental relationship between beauty and goodness, I would like to cite a passage from La Pensée et le Mouvant by Henri Bergson. This passage is striking for its decisive simplicity. It is grace that is seen through beauty and it is goodness that shows through grace. Because goodness is the infinite generosity of a principle of life that offers itself. These two meanings of the word grace merge into just one. If we want to return to Bergson's source, we can look again at Plotinus, who, following Plato, distinguishes three stages in the ascent of the soul toward the good. The soul begins by recognizing the beauty of perceptible things. Then it ascends backward, it ascends toward the world of mental forms, and it seeks the origin of their beauty. Finally, it seeks to attain the good which is formless beauty, surpassing formal beauty. We should make it clear that, according to Plotinus, beauty is linked to love. Love is a part of beauty, 
and constitutes its supreme state. Since beyond all the forms that beauty animates, what this love desires is the invisible light, the source of visible beauty. It is in this sense that we can understand Proust's statement. Beauty must not be loved for itself, because it is the fruit of the collaboration between the love of things and religious thinking. I have just called upon some of the great thinkers. As for my own personal feelings, it seems evident to me that goodness is beautiful. Let us simply pose this question. Is there an act of goodness that is not beautiful? The answer is a given, so to speak, because in French one says un beau geste, and in Chinese one says a beautiful virtue. But is the reverse true? At first glance, that may seem less evident. Beauty, in the standard sense, is not necessarily good. We even speak of the beauty of the devil. But let us not forget our basic criterion. True beauty is a matter of being, which moves in the direction of open life. As for the beauty of the devil, based on deceit, playing the game of destruction and death, it is ugliness itself. We have insisted on this point from the beginning of our meditations. True beauty surpasses appearance, which again explains Plotinus' claim. There is no beauty more real than the goodness one sees in someone. One loves him regardless of his face, which can be ugly, according to common sense. One leaves his entire external appearance behind, and seeks his illuminating internal beauty. Of course, not all beauty attains perfect goodness, but all true beauty partakes of this essence, and tends toward supreme harmony, a notion that has the approval of all the sages since antiquity. By harmony, I do not mean simply what is apparent in the arrangement of features that objectively constitute the presence of beauty. For me, harmony signifies above all that the presence of beauty emanates harmony, radiating a light of beneficence, which is the very definition of goodness. It is no exaggeration to say that goodness and beauty form the two faces of one organic, efficient entity. So what is the difference between them? Let us attempt a formula. Goodness is the guarantee of the quality of beauty. Beauty illuminates goodness and makes it desirable. When the authenticity of beauty is guaranteed by goodness, 
It is in the supreme state of truth which moves, let us repeat, in the direction of open life, to which we aspire as to something that is justified in and of itself. What is self-justified in the order of life is very much beauty, which, rising toward the state of joy and freedom, allows goodness itself to surpass the simple notion of duty. Beauty is the nobility of the good, the pleasure of the good, the delight of the good, the very radiance of the good. We are forced to recognize, however, that by some inexplicable aberration, the good is not valued in our times. Misunderstood, it is reduced to something bothersome because of its good-natured or goody-goody aspect. Given our condition as the damned on earth, occupied as we are with suffering, fear, drab quotidian ugliness, and forever delinquent desires, with regard to beauty, we prefer to exalt what is more perverse, what is more dramatic. Pessimism, indeed even cynicism, thus assume the role of beauty. They respond more effectively to our needs for derision and revolt. Nevertheless, we must have the courage to return to goodness, to the true. Here I am thinking of the fierce, impetuous Beethoven, thinking of his work and artistic creation in general. He was humble and lucid enough to say, the true artist has no pride. While others may admire him, he deplores having not yet arrived over there, where a brighter genius shines for him like a distant sun. I recognize in no man no sign of superiority other than goodness. There where I find it, there is my home. The goodness that nourishes beauty cannot be identified with a few more or less naive, good sentiments. It is exigency itself, the demand for justice, dignity, generosity, responsibility, elevation towards spiritual passion. Because human life is strewn with trials, eroded by difficulties, generosity requires ever deeper engagement. As a result, it also deepens its own nature and engenders various virtues like sympathy, empathy, solidarity, compassion, commiseration, forgiveness. All these virtues imply a gift of self and the gift of self is the gift that reminds us once again that the advent of the universe and life is an immense gift. This gift that keeps its promise and does not fail us in itself is in itself a moral code. When this gift of self goes so far as to comprise the giving of one's life with a view toward preserving intact the principle of life or saving the lives of others, that gift shines forth 
with a strange beauty. It signifies a supreme sense of justice, and the act so inspired conveys a courage full of nobility and grandeur. The most beautiful virtue in the eyes of the Confucians is to be ready to die for what is but the Ren, human love, the virtue of humanity. This ideal is shared by all the great religions. One thinks of those who, to varying degrees, had to confront evil in the name of peace or love, one thinks, no matter what our conviction or belief of Christ, who, in order to show that absolute love is possible and that no evil can affect it, willingly accepted death on the cross. That was, without a doubt, one of the greatest beaux-gestes that humanity has ever known. On another level, we also think of all those innocent subjects of terrible moral or physical trials, especially if, through pain and suffering, they retain that share of light that rises from the human soul, and we are seized by that glimmer of beauty that shows through the emaciated, neglected face. Yes, beauty will never be able to make us forget our tragic condition. But there is a uniquely human beauty, that fire of the spirit that burns, if it burns, beyond the tragic. All humans are not subjected to such trials, but all can partake of the grandeur arising from the inner dignity of those who confront the terrible in the name of life. That is probably why, in Western art, the paintings representing the Pietà count among the greatest masterpieces. Let us consider the Avignon Pietà of the Louvre, one of the most impressive works painted by Enguerrand Carton in 1455, is the first great French example of panel painting. Caught up in no traditional school or technical precociousness, the artist put all the power of his soul into his work. The painting, which is very wide, has the dimensions of a triptych, but it is all one piece. The body of the crucified Christ is stretched horizontally across the length of the painting, a body stiffened and broken, the legs giving way, the right arm hanging, the fingers of the hand retracted. Around the body, three figures are positioned. On the right, John is bent forward over the head of Christ, while with his two hands, in a gesture of devotion that reflects a boundless filial love, he works to extract the thorns driven into the torture victim's skull. By Christ's feet to the left is Mary Magdalene. She is also bent forward, her left hand holding a flask of perfume. Her blood-red robe covers half the corpse, like blood flowing back. The bit of its lining with which she wipes her tears is yellow. It echoes the yellow rays that emanate from Christ's head. 
Though the woman's face is pale, we still see her cheek inflamed with passion and her lips parted as if she is still calling to the man, breathing words of love to him, never uttered, never interrupted. In the center of the painting sits the Virgin. Her son's body is lying on her knees. She is dressed in a robe the color of dark night, which dramatically emphasizes the pallor of her face with its closed eyes and mouth. We can almost hear her silent cry of stunned grief. An upright bust, she is the only vertical figure in the painting, whereas the other two are positioned horizontally or obliquely. Rising in this way, she seems to be waiting at the very core of her suffering for a response from above.